I'd like to call your attention to the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. It is typically about two-thirds of the way in through your Bible. It's preceded by typically a blank page that separates the Old and the New Testaments. But the Bible is one book, and as we'll see this morning, Matthew is finishing off the job that we have seen Isaiah undertake in describing for us the coming Messiah. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would open up your word to us, that in your word we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. We might see all that he has done for us, and we might be grateful and thankful. And Lord, we also ask that we would see your call to holiness, to be more and more like Jesus, to love others, and to share the good news of the gospel. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. In this Advent season, we have been looking at the coming Messiah through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah not only predicted that the Messiah would come, he has told us a great deal about him. Isaiah told us about the Messiah through his names and through his character. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11. Now this morning, we come to the arrival of the Messiah. There are three Gospels that describe the Messiah's coming. John does so in cosmic fashion, talking about the Messiah as one who is before all things, who is uncreated, and who is the one who has created everything that has been made. Luke presents for us the Messiah for the whole world, and his focus 
is on the narrative of Jesus' birth through the perspective of Mary. And here we have Matthew, whose focus is Joseph's perspective. And it is a Jewish perspective. That is, Matthew focuses on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew's account is briefer, but it is directly linked to prophecy. As a matter of fact, in our text this morning, he even quotes another prophecy from Isaiah found in chapter 7. So this Sunday before Christmas, we will see the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah. And as we look, I would like us to see three things. First, we will see the advent of the Messiah. The Messiah is come. Second, we will see that forgiveness comes from the Messiah. And then thirdly, we will see that Jesus brings us fellowship with the Messiah. The advent of the Messiah, forgiveness from the Messiah, and fellowship with the Messiah. Well, let's begin then by looking at the advent of the Messiah as Jesus comes. And Matthew describes Jesus coming in such a way that it becomes clear that this is a divine child. This is no ordinary son to be born. He has been predicted for centuries. And as Jesus comes onto the scene, Matthew makes it clear that this is God himself. Now, Matthew sets the scene for the birth of Jesus. He does it in an interesting way. You may recall that there are two genealogies of Jesus Christ, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And it's interesting how these two gospel writers are different in the way that they present their story and how they complement each other. So, for example, Luke's genealogy comes at the end of the birth narrative. It is a summing up, as it were. And the line that he presents is the line of Mary. It goes all the way back to Adam himself. But father by father, generation by generation, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through the line of Mary. Now, Matthew's genealogy is different in that it comes at the beginning of the birth narrative. It doesn't wrap up the birth narrative, it sets up the birth narrative. And that's because Matthew is focused on the line of Joseph, the kingly line. Not that Joseph is Jesus' father, but that he is Jesus' legal father. Jesus has the claim to the throne of David through Joseph. And Matthew takes this genealogy back to Abraham. And that's because Matthew is concerned to show us that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. He is the son of David who would establish the kingdom of David forever and ever. He is the son of Abraham who is a blessing to all of the nations. So Matthew has a distinct purpose here. He is fulfilling and showing the fulfillment of the centuries-old prophecies of Isaiah and others. Now, we are immediately set to expect a miraculous act of God in history by the way that Matthew sets this up. 
If you see, if we go back to verse 1, Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then let your eyes go down to our first verse of our text, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word birth and the word genealogy are the same word that Matthew uses. It's a word that you should be familiar with. That word is Genesis in both of these instances. Now, the word Genesis is translated perfectly well in both verse 1 and verse 18 because of its context. But as soon as I say the word Genesis, you have something else in your mind. You're thinking about the first book of the Bible. You don't even have to know any Greek to know that that's the first book in the Bible. And when we think about the first book in the Bible, what do we think about? We think about creation. Well, what is creation? Creation is the very first miracle of God. It is God making something of nothing. It is God setting in motion His plan for the entire universe. And so as Matthew begins his story here, we are set to expect something similar. Another Genesis. Another creative act of God breaking into history. And Matthew very directly confronts us with that truth. His account of Jesus' birth is surprisingly short. It is much shorter than Luke's, which runs two full chapters. It is shorter even than John's account, which doesn't even have an account of Jesus' actual birth. Luke, or excuse me, Matthew is very direct. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, if you compare that to Luke's account, you will see that Luke goes more than 90 verses before he uses the word Christ. And even then, it is the angels who speak of Christ, not Luke as the narrator. But Matthew tells us right away that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he tells us very simply who this Messiah is. This Messiah is the divine child. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the details that Luke does. He doesn't repeat the story of Mary being told by an angel, of Mary visiting Elizabeth, of Mary's thoughts and ponderings. But Matthew makes it clear that this is no ordinary baby. It is no ordinary child. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He can't be more direct than that. The child, the Messiah, Jesus, is God. He comes from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is not the father. We're going to hear Joseph's story from Matthew, but it's clear that Joseph is not the father. Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. And this reminds us once again of Genesis. For after all, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters and life springs forth. So why would it seem inconceivable to us that the Spirit of God could hover over Mary and life would spring forth? This is consistent with God's miraculous acts in history. 
Now here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the Messiah comes from God. And this is the fulfillment of all that we have been promised. Do you remember what Isaiah promised us? That this Messiah would be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be filled with the Spirit without measure, permanently. He would be perfect in His judgment, perfect in righteousness, perfect in faithfulness. He would establish a renewed creation. And He would restore hope to all of the nations. Now, who could do that? But God. What man could do all of this? No one. That is why David, you will remember, called his son Lord. He knew that the Messiah would be God. Divine God Himself. The Jesus who comes, whom we celebrate at Christmas, is God himself. He is the promised one. He is the one sent by God to right every wrong. Do you believe that? Don't just believe in good feelings at Christmas. Do you believe that Christmas is a reason to rejoice because God has come and has broken into history in the person of Jesus Christ? That's the real meaning of Christmas. Now, this story is hard to believe. And so as we think about the advent of the Messiah, we must think not only about Him being divine, we must think about our obligation to believe the unbelievable. Now, we should not act as if the story of Christmas is simple and obvious. I think sometimes... We as Christians make that mistake. We think that as we go out in the world, we should just speak simply of Christmas and everyone will understand exactly what it means and believe it in all of its truth. The story of Christmas is not something that everyone understands. After all, the ones who were closest to it, Joseph and Mary, had a hard time believing it. We're told that Mary responded to Gabriel with wonder. She didn't really understand what was going on. Of course, how could she? There are no other virgin conceptions and births. But with a simple submission, she said, Let it be done to me according to your word. Joseph's first thoughts were not of the fulfillment of prophecy. It's not as if Joseph heard that Mary was with child and he said to himself, Of course, Isaiah 7.14. Why didn't you know that? No. We're told much about Joseph in the Bible. We're told enough. He was a just man, Matthew tells us, which meant that he followed God's word and he would have been evident as a follower of the Lord in his actions. Joseph knew how the world worked. When Mary was found to be with child, he just assumed that she had sinned. He knew he wasn't responsible, and he knew he was the only one who should have been responsible. Now, that's because although Joseph and Mary were not yet married, their engagement was much more like a marriage than our engagements today. Today, when a couple is engaged, it is a promise to get married. And I wouldn't say that the majority of engagements break off, but it certainly is not in the very low percentages. 
Engagements are canceled. Wedding deposits are lost. Rings are given back. And no one thinks really the less of it except for maybe some sadness and some entanglements. But no, in the days of the New Testament, an engagement, a betrothal, which is the word that Matthew uses, was much more like a marriage. As a matter of fact, the only way in which it wasn't like a marriage is the marriage would not have been consummated. A betrothal was a one-year period in which the bride and the groom were obligated to each other in a social contract. They were considered as married, and that would be consummated on their wedding night. In fact, to break an engagement, you had to get divorced. Now, did that strike you as odd when Matthew wrote that? That Joseph resolved to divorce his not-yet-wife? That's how strong an engagement was in those days. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, a betrothed woman is called a wife. And so Joseph has to figure out what to do. His wife-to-be is found to be with child. And so he decides to take an honorable course and to protect Mary as best as he can. He will not put her to shame, but he will rather be quiet about the divorce. Now, this tells us something about Joseph. Because it would cost him in order to protect her. That passage in Deuteronomy chapter 22 advises that if a betrothed woman is unfaithful, that she can be put to death. So Joseph could have had Mary put to death, but instead he resolves to protect her to divorce her quietly. But once again, God intervenes. Do you notice how the God of the Bible is so unlike the God of philosophers and intellectuals? You see, they picture some sort of higher power, if you will, who, if anything, sets things in motion and then sort of stands back and watches. But the true God, the God of the Scriptures, is continually intervening in the lives of of his people. He is blessing them, helping them. And so it is here. The angel is sent by God to help Joseph to see what is at work here. To help him believe the unbelievable. Now Joseph had made up his mind. Matthew tells us that he had resolved to divorce Mary quietly. And the way that that verb is used, it is buttoned up. There's no hesitation here. He has considered it and made his decision. Have you ever had that happen to yourself? Where you have thought and pondered and worried and run over a major decision that you needed to make in your life. And then finally, you resolve to take a course of action. And you might even sleep on it as as it looks like Joseph has done. But there is a resolution in your mind, and you sort of can breathe easier. You're past that. You now can move on because you have made a decision. That is what Joseph has done. And so then Matthew uses one of his favorite phrases in verse 20. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, this is an interesting word here, behold. Matthew uses it more than any other writer in the New Testament. More than 60 times he uses this word. And behold has some some power to it, 
some traditional sense to it. But we might even translate it, look! What Matthew's saying is, look, God is here. Look, see what God is doing. The angel is here and will tell Joseph (coughs) both what has happened and why it has happened. He is going to tell Joseph the purpose of God. God is not asking Joseph to believe without a reason. No, he is asking Joseph to believe what God is doing. And Joseph does. He believes the unbelievable. And we see that here in verse 24, that Joseph does just what the angel has commanded. He marries Mary and he calls the child Jesus. Do you see how significant it is that God breaks in? Now, you may say to yourself, well, of course, if an angel appeared to me in light and told me to do something, of course I would do it. I don't think so. I don't think it's the flash and the bang of the angel. I think it's the Word of God. The Word of God that rings true to God's Word. The Word of God which gives hope to Joseph. Are you ready this morning to believe the unbelievable? It seems that there is no better time of year to do that than at Christmas. We are open to hope, even though our lives are hard. We are open to love, even though we have been hurt. Why are we open to that? Because God has set it in our hearts. God has set it in your heart to follow after Him. And to do that, You have to believe. You have to believe what so many call unbelievable. That God would so love you that He would send His Son to redeem you from your sins. Believe in this Messiah. This Jesus. So why all of this? Why all this Christmas fuss? Now, the Christmas story is an incredible story. It fills us with joy. It is a great drama. It has a young girl, a confused groom, the heavenly angels, the seeking shepherds, the chorus of heaven breaking forth in praise. But have you ever wondered why this great story is necessary? Why would God do this? Why would the Son come to earth, take on humanity, and become a baby? Well, the answer is found in the angel saying in verse 21. He tells Joseph, do not fear. Now, the immediate application is, of course, to Joseph's marriage. The angel is telling him, do not be afraid to marry Mary. We can see that. But there is a broader application as well. Joseph doesn't need not to fear, just because of his circumstances. He doesn't just need to be told that Mary has not sinned. No, he is told not to fear because of the purpose of God. All of this is happening because God's people are sinners. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. From their sins. Now, this takes us back to Genesis again, except for chapter 3, not chapter 1. 
It's a reminder that the Bible is in part a story of sin. We see it over and over again, even in all of the greatest heroes of the Bible, in Abraham, in Moses, in David. We see that they fall short of the glory of God and sin. Now, Joseph surely would have seen that as well. He would have also seen sin all around him in the injustice of his day, in the hurt that was around him. And perhaps most significantly, he would have seen it in his own heart. He was a just man, Matthew tells us, who tried to follow God's word and his law. But he would have known how far short he fell of God's requirement. Joseph believes the Christmas story because he knew he needed a Messiah. He needed saving. Again, that is why Christmas should fill us with hope. We know in our heart of hearts that we have messed up. We know even if others don't observe us that we are sinners, that we fall short of God's law, that we need saving. We know even when we try our best that we are lost. We don't have all the answers. We hurt other people. We do what we know we should not. Do you know that the Christmas story does not require you to be perfect? In fact, it assumes you're not. Too often we see Christmas as a time of performance. We have to get the perfect gifts for others. We have to have the perfect parties. We have to say the perfect things to other people. But the coming of the Messiah does not put any pressure on you. God sent the Messiah because you are not perfect. In fact, you are a sinner. You need saving. You need to be rescued. That's what the word saving means. Christmas is just the beginning of the story. A story that God writes. And it ends in the forgiveness of those who believe the story and who trust in Jesus to save them. Now the angel also makes it clear that Jesus is the one to save sinners. It's not just that we need a Savior, but Jesus is that Savior. And he does this in two ways. Through a direct statement and through a name. The Messiah is coming, God says, through his angel. He's coming because he's needed. This is God solving the greatest problem in all of the universe, the problem of sin. Now make no mistake, Christmas exists because we need Easter. The Messiah has come to free his people from sin, to bring forgiveness and grace. And so we see here first the direct statement from the angel. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice how certain the angel is. It's not that he could save his people. It's not that he may save his people. No, there's no concept of doubt here at all. We are not wondering if Jesus is up for the task. He will save his people. We are told plainly and directly that Jesus will do this. He will save. Now this is important for you to hear. 
I'm not telling you this morning that Jesus can make your life better. So that you might want to consider Jesus amongst a panoply of options. I'm not saying that Jesus is a wise and sound choice for your life. I'm telling you what God has said. That you are a sinner and you need forgiveness. You need hope. And the only way you can get forgiveness and hope is through Jesus. There is no other Savior. No one else can save. No one else will save. Only Jesus. Do not wait for a better option. Do not look around for other solutions. Believe that Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins by paying the penalty you deserve. This is the story of Christmas. Secondly, we see it in the name that the angel announces, Jesus. Have you ever wondered why his name is Jesus? Of course, the Messiah needed a name, but how to choose the name? It is, it is hard to choose a name for a child, isn't it, parents? Because there are many considerations. The parents have to agree on a name that, that they both like. Then, of course, there are the names of family members to consider. Then, of course, there are names that talk about what our hopes would be that the child would grow up into. Now, we have been blessed and that my wife and I have had no conflict over the names that we would give our children. But that's not always the case. And it's not always the case that children like the names that they've been given. Some children, almost as soon as they're given a name, come up with a nickname that they use. Other children prefer their middle name to their given name. But with the Messiah, there is more at work here than preferences. His name is married to his purpose. Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua. Or it would have been pronounced in Hebrew, Yeshua. That's his actual name. And that name has meaning. It means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. As one commentator puts it, it means God to the rescue. Now this is not a coincidence. God did not leave the name up to Joseph. It's not as if the angel came and said, sit down with Mary, come up with a list of names, Match that against the most popular names in Palestine in the first century and and choose a unique name for the Messiah. No, of course not. It was very specific, this name, because the mission of the Messiah was very specific. It was to save God's people from their sins. Now, this would not have surprised Joseph. Because Joseph, being a just man, would have known his Bible. He would have been told what the Messiah would do. That the angel announces in verse 21. He knows that it is what God has promised to do specifically. To save his people from their sins. There is an Old Testament promise that is like the prophecies of Isaiah that we have seen before. Except for it's found in the Psalms. In Psalm 130 we read in verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The 
promise of God. We see that Joseph believed God about the Savior. How do we know this? Look at verse 25. It's so simple and short that you might miss it. And he, that is Joseph, called his name Jesus. He believed that this son would save his people from their sins. He trusted God, Joseph did, that his own Savior would be this child, this Jesus, this Messiah. Well, we've seen Matthew describe the advent of the Messiah and the forgiveness that comes from the Messiah. Now we see one last thing. We see that the Messiah comes with fellowship. And again, Matthew links back to the Old Testament. For the first of 11 times in this gospel, he uses a variation of a phrase of fulfillment. Look at verse 22. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now this is the first and I think the greatest of such forebodings. Notice in this that Matthew says, all this took place. Now, in all of the other times that Matthew speaks of fulfillment, there's only one other occasion where he references all that had happened. And it was at the end of his gospel when he's speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross. The two most important events of our Savior's life, his birth and his coming death, Matthew says, were foretold. Fulfill what God has promised in his word. And then Matthew here cites the prophecy that is fulfilled in verse 23. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is another prophecy of Isaiah. And I think you can see right here why Matthew loves this word, Behold. He's following in Isaiah's footsteps. He's saying, Look, see what God has said. See what God will do. Now, this is another prophecy of Isaiah, one we haven't looked yet in detail. It occurs in Isaiah 7, verse 14. But we're already familiar with the background of this prophecy. We talked about it some when we looked at Isaiah 9 and and chapter 11. You may remember that Ahaz was the king of Judah, and he was threatened by invasion, so he was afraid. Isaiah tells us that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's Old Testament for his knees were a knocking. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he tells him not to be afraid because the Lord will be with them. The Lord will protect them. He calls Ahaz to be firm in faith and to trust God. And he goes on to ask Ahaz to ask God for a sign. Because God gives signs to his people to give them confidence in his word. Not because God is untrustworthy, but because we are weak. We need something to hold on to. We need help. But Ahaz won't take the sign. He makes an excuse. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, if you're looking up 
worst pious-sounding excuses in all of the Bible start here. Because you'll recall, Ahaz isn't the initiator of the sign. That would be putting God to the test. God has said, you ask me for a sign so that I can show you I'm with you. So what Ahaz is really saying is, I don't need God. I don't trust God. The only one I trust is myself. I don't need God with me. I need me, myself, and I. And what is the sign that God gives? It's the sign of the virgin conceiving and giving birth. It's the Lord's sign of His protection and blessing that the virgin will bear a son. Now this is astonishing. Some try to downplay it by saying that the Hebrew word here can mean a young woman. And that young women have children all the time. This isn't that remarkable. But young woman is not what is meant here. That's why when the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew to Greek, they used a specific Greek word that means specifically a virgin, not just a young woman. That's why Matthew here, when citing the prophecy, uses that Greek word that means virgin. It doesn't just mean any young woman. Now, why does God give this sign? Why does the virgin birth happen, or better yet, the virgin conception? Well, we see why in the second name that is mentioned in this passage. The Messiah will not only be called Jesus, he will be called Emmanuel. That is God with us. Matthew even tells you that to make sure you don't miss it. This is not a prayer, it's not a wish, it is a statement. God gets through to us in His way. He doesn't need us to figure out our way. Do you feel alone at Christmas time? Do you feel alone even when you're surrounded by people? Do you feel like no one understands you, your pain, your hurt? Well, Jesus does. He is God with you. He is not only God, but He is man as well. There is nothing in your life that Jesus cannot sympathize with. Jesus knows your deepest needs. He has come to save you from your sins and to be with you. He is Emmanuel. Well, we cannot forget that these two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, come together in the person of Jesus Christ. God is with us in Jesus because He has come to save us from our sins. The sign that Matthew talks about shows us that God alone can save. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, it's God's way of saying, get out of the way. I will work salvation. Jesus is not come just to be some representation of God to us that we can see. But he has come to share our humanity, to save us. And so at the very beginning of the gospel, that's what we see. We see Jesus, the Messiah, come to earth to be with us and to bring us to God. God is with us so that God can be for us in his death on the cross, in order to be God forever with us. In conclusion, 
Are you ready to believe the story of Christmas? The whole story? The story that tells us that a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit and bore a son. That that son's name was Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save sinners from their sins. Sinners like you and me. He is not just a Messiah. He is not just the Messiah. He is your Messiah. Open your heart to the story of Christmas. Because it is a story of the God who rules history becoming a part of history in order to redeem creation. What better day than today to trust Jesus? What better day to realize that God is with you and for you in Jesus Christ? The Messiah has come. He will save His people from their sins. He is God with us. Let's pray.